I remember still Jim sort of stepped back for a second and looked at all of us and then said, oh, these are my grandchildren. I'm Danielle Yet, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, where I am a junior member. In this podcast, we get together to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We want Critical Faith to give you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS. Each week, we will invite past and present members of ICS and friends of the Institute to join us. We'll ask them to share their journey in scholarship and how it connects to their faith and their lives. I'm Mark Standish, and I'm also an ICS junior member. Joining us today, we have ICS junior member and Critical Faith founding father, Dean Detloff. We'll welcome Dean back to the fold a little later in the program. And that gets us to our first segment, Don't Miss This. In this segment, we will highlight all kinds of things that we don't want you as our listeners to miss. New books and articles in philosophy, theology, and current affairs, important events and anniversaries in these same worlds and in the church year, and every now and then, an event at the Institute for Christian Studies. So, Mark, tell me, what should we not miss out on? Well, I'm going to tell you about a conference in, in Hamilton again. Um, which, it's like you like Hamilton. I know. Or it's it's like I live there or something. It's <laughs> kind of outrageous that I talk like this. But anyways, um, True City Conference, um, which is Friday, March first, and Saturday, March second, um, and the sort of theme is entitled "A Long Obedience, Persevering Together in the Way of Jesus." And what True City is is a bunch of churches in Hamilton that come together and tackle. Uh, problems like poverty and servanthood um, and as, as a group um, ecumenically. Um, and one of the keynote speakers is my sister, Jen Arnold, um, and it'll be really good. So if you're around, um, come on out for that conference. Nice. How, like, is it a pretty sizable group of people that ends up going? Yeah, it is pretty big. It would probably be like 100 people. Nice. Um, yeah, not unwieldy. But a good amount, not so much that you feel out of place, That's you know? Fair. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. What about you, Danielle? My don't miss this is probably something that doesn't need any help being known. So I I love the AGO. The AGO is Art Gallery Ontario, for those of you who don't know. Um, it's the major art gallery here in Toronto. And they have a new exhibit. It's called Impressionism in the Age of Industry, Monet, Pissarro, and more. Hmm. So they're kind of digging into their Impressionism collection. Apparently they have a number of pieces that I know of kind of on rotating exhibit um, regularly. And then they're borrowing a few, I'm assuming. Um, I'm planning to go to it soon. Uh, it's running till May, like the beginning of May. If they hmm. don't extend it, it's going till at least May. 
to me, it seems like it's piggybacking off of their mystical landscapes exhibit that happened a couple of years ago now Hmm. that ICS had a hand in our senior member, Rebecca Rebecca Smick helped out with curating. Well, helped the curator of that. Yeah. Yeah. So they kind of have gone back into their impressionism, but digging into the industrial side of it, which is not typically what you think about with impressionist paintings. You tend to think Mm. of like fields and lily ponds and all these things like the plein air painting that they all did out in the wilds of France. Yeah. So this one's kind of showing the darker slash more socially charged, I guess, Mm. side of their paintings or like um, motive to their paintings. So sounds like it's going to be really interesting. I'm excited about it. So it's worth checking out, I think. Check it out. AGO. When does it end? So it ends on May 5. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. So you've got some time. For our second segment, we want to give you a glimpse of what it is like to be critically faithful in a graduate school of philosophy, theology, and interdisciplinary studies like ICS. So we're simply asking our guests, what are you working on? We'll talk about seminars and courses taking place at ICS at this moment, the reading and other research our members are doing, our writing, publishing, presentations, and conference participation. So welcome, Dean. Before we jump in, I'd like to ask you a few intro questions. First. Tell me, what was your favorite childhood book? <laughs> I guess it depends on what time of your childhood. My mom reports I liked There's a Walk It in My Pocket by Dr. Seuss. Mm. So I don't actually remember reading it, but I have it on good authority that it was, in <laughs> fact, my favorite book. <laughs> I wasn't like a big childhood reader. I, yeah. Like I did it for the Pizza Hut coupons, but that's about Fair. it. Yeah. yeah. Have you read that book since? Uh, I haven't. No, I ought to, I guess. I don't know. Hasn't been on my my reading priority list. But Take a journey back into your childhood, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Find out what kicks up. Second, what is your favorite bar or coffee shop in ISDS's hometown? Uh, the Sidekick, which is on Greenwood and Queen. They sell comic books and also roast coffee there. And I have been known to work behind the bar there. As ah, well. nice. It's very good, though. Genuinely good. Uh, it's really great. Owned independently and everything's done really intentionally and it's a really amazing place it's kind of also it's near the beach so if you're in toronto hanging out most people don't get over that far east so worth worth going awesome that's great and our third and last intro question is also the most controversial who do you think is the most overrated philosopher of our time or (laughs) if you like all time oh boy uh i don't know there are philosophers i don't necessarily like to read or like what they have to say necessarily Mm. but i don't even know that they're overrated i mean probably there are very many that are overrated but none of them 
pop up to me. Who like grinds your gears? <laughs> uh, Hannah Arendt lately hmm. has been grinding my gears, and I did take a class on her here with Ron, which was very very good. So no fault on his part. Um, yeah, I've just been kind of revisiting some of her stuff and more and more critical, I think, the more I read. I will say she's productive to disagree with. I'll give her that. Certainly. Um, so in reading her, I find myself thinking a lot of good negative thoughts, if you will. <laughs> like, I don't find my disagreements just extremely, um, you know, useless or anything. But nevertheless, she does grind my gears for sure. Can you give us a taste of one of the things that grinds your gears about Hannah Arendt lately? <laughs> Yeah, um, mostly I've been reading her through the lens of a bunch of philosophers on race that I've okay, read yeah. as well. And I just find that she is surprisingly not very good, in my opinion, on anti-black racism in mm. the U.S. And I was just reading her book on violence. Yeah. And it's a fascinating book because there are some kinds of violences that she seems to be willing to investigate in a nuanced way. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to the violence that was happening as she was writing it, which was happening both on the part of the police in the U.S. and also on the part of certain uh, black radicals at the time. She doesn't seem to bring that same nuance. And yeah. Yeah, I find that a bit troubling. Um, and there's other places that the race stuff shows up as well. And yeah, she has a certain view of the American project that I think is somewhat naive and yeah. problematic. But yeah, anyway, let's, to make a long story short, those are some, some gear grinding issues. So now we can get into it. Um, what what are you working on these days? Uh, I'm working on my dissertation. Which is? It is about religion, technology, and politics. So a couple things you're not supposed to talk about at parties. That's how <laughs> I always introduce it. Uh, but yeah, the, the premise is drawing from a German philosopher named Peter Sloterdijk who argues that religions are technologies. Not only do they use technologies, but they themselves are ways that people work on themselves and change themselves hmm. for better and for worse. So it's a kind of structural or formalist view of what religion is. And he goes as far to say there's no such thing as religion. Uh, what we have called religions are actually just technologies, and we'd be better off thinking about them that way. And I thought, well, that's an interesting thesis. Could you read certain philosophers of technology as though they were philosophers of religion? Hmm. You know, how much of that is metaphorical? Uh, on Sloterdijk's part, and how much is it actually maybe a productive way of looking at it. And so that's the experiment of the dissertation, is to read a few philosophers of technology to try to, try to shed some light on problems in religious studies and uh, Christianity in particular. So that's the bit, that's the nutshell version. Nice. That yeah. sounds great. Are there any other, other things that you're working on these days? I am teaching a class here at ICS in the MWS program. I'm really excited about that. So it's called Organized Religion, Christianity, and Anti-Capitalism in the U.S. and Canada. We're four weeks in. This is the fifth week now. And yeah, that's been really exciting. Lots of uh, intriguing conversations. There's a really diverse group of mm. students and participants in the course. And it's some of the stuff that I've used in my dissertation research as well. So always exciting to be able to get other people's thoughts on what you have spent so much time you know, alone sort of yeah. thinking through. So yeah. That's great. And mm. I think like for people like Jim or uh, other faculty here at ICS, they do that similar thing where they sort of experiment their ideas in their seminars. And I think that that's a great opportunity for you and a great opportunity for 
our listeners who maybe want to jump in on that or audit. I don't know if that's possible at this point. But I think it is closed now, but there will be another class along similar lines in the fall. So if you are still interested, I mean, be on the lookout, I suppose. Yeah. Would you be doing that in the fall? Yeah. So I'm designing the syllabus now. Uh, is the course the same? Is it slightly different? Uh, it tell is, us a bit. Yeah. So it's still at the intersection of Christianity and the left broadly construed mm -hmm. and there's two directions that I haven't really decided which one. So maybe I'll just say both of them and yeah, go if people it. feel strongly, they can help me sort out <laughs> which one I ought to do. Uh, so what this particular class I'm doing now is a history class. So it's looking through a number of historical articles and essays written by historical figures to try to piece together a story about Christianity and the left in these two countries. So from there, there's kind of two directions. The one is extending that historical analysis beyond the U.S. and Canada and to ask questions of where do Christians show up in these anti-capitalist struggles elsewhere in other parts of the mm. world. So, for example, in the Philippines, there's a group called the Christians for National Liberation, and they are embedded in this broad coalition of communist parties and workers organizations and all these other kinds of folks. And they're really fascinating right now. They're led by a nun. They still exist. I mean, you know, they're part of like a militant opposition to a very right wing government. So um, places like that, you know, reading about those kinds of of struggles and struggles in different parts of the world. So that would be one direction is to kind of expand the purview of what we've been looking at in these two countries to think more globally. Hmm. The other is not historical so much as theoretical. So to say, well, Christianity and the left have this interesting relationship, sometimes conflictual, sometimes cooperative. And are there theoretical tools we could use to think more deeply about that? So for example, what did Marx and Lenin and others have to say about religion? And then from the other side of that conversation, what did certain Christians also have to say about Marxism, which is a dialogue that was really popular in the 20th century, has kind of gone away and now seems to be sort of coming back again. So trying to think more theoretically about, you know, what does it mean to think through Christian leftist dialogue in the 21st century or something? So, hmm. yeah, haven't decided, but those are the two possibilities. Yeah. Wow, that's great. And uh, I hear that you have your own podcast. Why don't you tell us a bit about your podcast on our podcast? <laughs> sure. Yeah, I have a podcast called The Magnificast, and I co-host it with a friend of mine, Matt Bernico. He's a professor at Greenville uh, University in Greenville, Illinois. And it's about Christianity and the left, and it, depending on how much time we have to produce it, uh, it sort of ranges in terms of topics from interviewing people about books that they've read or journalists about stories that they've covered, um, a few opinion pieces and things like that, activists about what they've been up to. So it ranges from interviewing other folks to uh, the two of us kind of reading different texts and thinking them through and trying to draw out certain threads that we think are interesting or helpful. You know, both of us are academically trained, so that's kind of one gift that we're trying hmm. to utilize together to think through some of these problems. Um, but uh, we're also trying to amplify voices from other people and see what kind of light that sheds on this movement that seems to be growing of Christian people who are invested in left politics these days. Hmm. And our listeners can find that at? Uh, everywhere. It's on iTunes and uh, Spotify. It's not on Spotify, actually. Don't look there. <laughs> it's, on, it's on iTunes, Stitcher. Um, yeah, I don't know. Wherever you can find it. We yeah. post them on SoundCloud originally, and then from there they kind of make their way onto the other platforms. But yeah. Great. Um, and before we move on to our next segment, do you have anything else that you're working on that you'd like to include or that you can think of right now? Um, 
I guess I could say I spend some time doing certain kind of organizing work, um, specifically with a group called Christians for Socialism. Mm. And that's a really fun project and you meet a lot of interesting people and it is sometimes a lot of work, but always very meaningful, I think. And uh, yeah, it's a kind of growing um, network of different Christians invested in conversations about socialism. And historically, it existed in the 70s and 80s. And then there's a number of folks, of uh, which I'm included, trying to bring some of that back and think through how to be faithful to that story and that legacy of Christian individuals and uh, see what that means for us today. In fact, tonight I have a Christian Socialism meeting that I have to make an agenda for. <laughs> uh, so that's a project I'll do right after this. <laughs> yeah. Great. Well, uh, thanks for talking to me and uh, I'll let Danielle take over from here. This week, we're asking Dean to narrate a bit about his undergraduate years, and specifically, we're going to ask him what moved him in the direction of where he is now. So, Dean, could you give us a glimpse into your undergraduate experience? <laughs> I can. I'll uh, pe- peel back the veil, I guess, with some <laughs> of my, my mystique. Reveal everything. <laughs> That's it. I went to Cornerstone University in Grand Rapids, Michigan, for undergrad. I went there initially as a youth ministry major, which feels very far away from my brain at this point in time. Uh, But that's what I was going to do, be a youth pastor. And uh, yeah, I took a philosophy class with Matt Bonzo, who is a graduate of ICS. And that ruined my youth ministry plans. (laughs) I felt I really needed to learn more about that. And uh, yeah, I don't know how long I should go on about it. But uh, Do you feel like there it was an absolute break with your plans or do you feel like there's some (laughs) element that kind of continued Um, that transition no it was pretty quick that i was like no i guess i can't (laughs) i can't do youth group um for a living uh uh, so i still remember the first question that bonzo asked in his intro class or at least one of the opening questions was he put sort of on this big whiteboard uh, what time is it and what he meant was, you know, when you're looking around at the sort of conceptual landscape that we all move through and are part of, what does it look like? You know, what what does it mean to live in this time and not a different time, an earlier time or a future time? And he said that was a kind of driving question that would make us think through all these philosophers in an intro to philosophy class. And I just remember it, it was so simple, but like I'd never <laughs> thought like that really before. And it felt like something I it became a problem that I needed to continue to think about. Um, so that was part of it that just caused me to sort of break with the youth ministry stuff. Um, and secondly, too, uh, Dr. Bonzo is a big fan of this guy named Wendell Berry, and he wrote a book about him. And Barry is a, a guy who left this career as a literature professor to become a farmer and wrote a number of novels and, and poetry and things. And uh, Bonzo, too, is a farmer and also a university professor, and he really lives that kind of life. So, you know, he would invite philosophy students over to his house, and then he and um, his wife Dorothy and their son Matthias all had this very kind of beautiful uh, life of hospitality together and that in addition to thinking through all the problems that form of life I just mm-hmm. thought was really really attractive and I thought wow I would like to lead a life that was that meaningful you know so yeah, yeah that kept me going I suppose nice so from intro to philosophy class where did you where did you go from there yeah I, so I changed my major and 
uh, worked on that in philosophy for the last uh, three years of my time at Cornerstone. And it was a really great time. During that time, I met a couple of ICS professors. Kind of coincidentally, I met Jim Oltheus at a conference that I went to as an undergraduate. And uh, that was like a whole thing. <laughs> uh, very fun experience. Um, I guess I could. it's probably a good story because yeah. it gives some insight into Yeah, let Jim. us know what kind of a thing. Yeah. So it was a conference at Syracuse that was organized by John Caputo. And we had read Caputo in a class, and so it was all very exciting to go to this conference as like a, I don't know, it would have been like 20 or 21 or something. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember a bunch of us got there as undergraduates early because, you know, I don't know. It's like a weird thing to be excited about when you're an undergraduate, but it's very exciting. And Caputo was there kind of milling about, like getting last minute things in order. And he started chatting with us and he said, wow, you're from this evangelical school. What are you even doing here? That's bizarre to me. I don't understand. <laughs> and uh, we said, well, we have this teacher, Matt Bonzo, and he had this teacher, Jim Oltheus. And Caputo and Jim have a long history together. So Jim also ended up being there early and sort of wandered over because he saw Caputo. And they got to talking, and Caputo said, hey, these are students of uh, Matt Bonza. Do you remember him in, in Grand Rapids? And uh, I remember still Jim sort of stepped back for a second and looked at all of us and then said, oh, these are my grandchildren, and just, like, gave us all hugs without having ever met us in our whole life. And, you know, so, again, just sort of attracted to that character and that joy of, of life that he had. Um, so that was one. And the other, I met Cal Searveld a couple of times while at Cornerstone, too. He gave a lecture and... They performed a play of his at Cornerstone as well that was really, really powerful and moving. And so those encounters just made me feel like, you know, I'd like to learn more about what that what that's like to be that kind of a scholar. Yeah. So that joyful and hospitable element with your with your undergraduate mentors. Yeah. Was that do you find that that's do you find yourself trying to embody that? as well? Or how do you find yourself trying to embody that? Yeah, I have to admit I'm not uh, as skilled as they are <laughs> <laughs> cultivating those kinds of virtues in my own life. Um, I do find myself convicted by that. I would like to be more like all of them in, in those ways in particular. Um, maybe that's something that will come later on. But uh, I, I have a more polemical or combative personality, so it's harder for me to like rein that in sometimes, mm -hmm. I think. Um, and all, all of them, Cal and, and Jim and Bonzo and others, they they have a just an immense capacity to sort of listen in my experience and, you know, uh, help you through your problems or whatever, philosophical and otherwise. Um, mm. So maybe someday I'll <laughs> develop those skills as well. But right now, I, I guess I'm, yeah, still still dealing with some some youthful angst. <laughs> youth, youthful post-youth pastor angst. <laughs> angsty philosophy is there's a place for that as well i'm sure <laughs> yeah so you was it kind of clear from the outset then having interacted with matt and then jim and these this clear having had this clear transition moment that you wanted to do academics for as long as you could <laughs> <laughs> uh it wasn't immediately clear i took a year off um i worked at like a bookstore yeah. just read a bunch of books and had a number of kind of weird life experiences happen during that year. I got married that year. My dad also passed away that year. So it was like a very strange like yeah. time of like life transitions. And I sort of thought, well, maybe I could go back to school and at least this would like help me kind of put my world together some way or other. And uh, I thought, well, if I'm going to go to school, I 
the only school I could really see myself thriving in is the place that produced all these people that I respect a lot. So mm-hmm. I applied to ICS the day before applications were due, <laughs> uh, which is pretty on brand. Um, and uh, I thought if they accept me, I'll go. And if they don't, like, I just won't go. And I mean, I was married at that time, too. And Emily, my partner, she was kind of like, yeah, whatever. We just need to figure something out and make maybe make a change or whatever. So, yeah, they accepted us. And then a few months later, we moved here and we've been here ever since. Yeah. What kind of sealed the deal for you in wanting to actually apply then? Uh, I guess those meetings, for sure, uh, meeting all three of them and and other ICS people over time. Um, We came here to visit once, and we stayed with Jeff Hawking, who's a student here and was once our registrar, Mm -hmm. and his partner Angie, and they were both extremely lovely, hospitable people as well. Also, coincidentally, Cornerstone graduates, so kind of a weird connection. Um, yeah, and we sat in on a course and we met all the professors here at that time. And so that helped seal the deal. I think the relationship bit really kind of made me want to come and then also made me stick around to continue in the PhD program. So yeah, that would be it. I I was, I was never like a good student in high school or anything like that. And I struggled to be a good student in undergrad as well, but I have not struggled here, I can say, which is nice. <laughs> I can attest, you're a superstar. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks. L- lots of really, really good productive people, I think, to sort of help develop those skills. Yeah. I'm, I've am i also been drawn toward the what seems to me they're, uh, the lack of divide between these people's like whole lives and why they study what they study yeah, and yeah, actually yeah. what they study, like that they live through studying it so it makes sense that that to me that that would be also what drew you yeah exactly yeah Yeah. i think there's like something at stake in the scholarship here that makes a big difference and you know friends and colleagues of mine at other institutions when i sort of explain to them what it's like to study here they're often very surprised at how like cooperative and in my experience anyway not competitive it is among other junior members and um, senior members and that kind of a thing so I think that's just like a really valuable and rare thing and when I was applying to PhD programs I thought that's not really something I want to give up or wasn't ready to like leave so yeah and that way I've yeah I mean I disagree with many of my senior member <laughs> mentors a lot uh, but they're all like very supportive of those disagreements and mm. they like want me to think through why I disagree with them and how I could you know articulate that in a way that makes sense and is true to both myself and my education so yeah in that way it's it's a really unique environment i think in that all the scholarly work is done with this apparatus of support and encouragement yeah it is funny though just i just remember you describing yourself as more of a polemical personality (laughs) that you would also be drawn towards somewhere that's like very not polemical in that (laughs) in that sense in a traditional sense so I wonder if you've ever thought about like what kind of a scholar you would be if you yeah. found yourself in a more kind of competitive environment. Yeah, that's a good question. I hadn't really thought, I've never really thought about that. Um, I think that it would create a great deal of anxiety that I wouldn't do well with myself yeah. um, to be in a very competitive environment, that is. Uh, whereas here, I I just feel like being combative and polemical is the way that I learn, and um, which is not a, like a defense of it necessarily. I don't view it as a virtue or a vice. It's just a fact of my life. <laughs> just a thing. Yeah, exactly. And I think that in that respect, like learning that way in an environment that is open to its own kind of self-criticism, which is what ICS 
seems to be capable mm. of doing is really healthy for me because it helps me to like learn in a way that I know is probably off-putting to other kinds of, of faculty and reasonably so. But here is like professors are trying to figure out like, well, wh- why does this hit you in this way or strike you like that or mm. what makes you want to disagree with this and you know in that way too they also help to I think temper some of that polemical attitude and get me to think harder about like well do you really need to be that combative with respect to this or that author or mm. you know what's at the root of that etc so in that way it's like personally and scholarly helpful that's interesting yeah would you have any advice to give to kind of current undergrads as they kind of face the prospect of life after undergrad or if they're thinking about graduate school, like what's something you would ask them to consider? Yeah. Hmm. Um, I don't know if I'm a good person to give advice only because I'm still sort of stuck on the track of academia yet. Um, so I, have, I haven't gone through this. Like I'm not <laughs> on the other side of it. So take that with a grain of salt, I guess. Uh, but I mean... For me, I felt like everybody, when I got my degree, and I think it's probably maybe even more true now, uh, everybody I talked to said, you should not go to graduate school because you will for sure not get a job in philosophy when you graduate. Mm -hmm. And probably that was good advice for someone (laughs) to give to me. Uh, But I also felt like, yeah, but I'm compelled to do this. And I I have to do this one way or another. And I have to find out for myself whether or not that's true. Mm. And, you know, so far, I still don't know, because I haven't been applying for jobs yet, really. Um, But uh, the advice that I would give, I guess, is to try to be true to both of those points of advice and not not put all your stock into one or the other. You know, like job prospects are not the only reason that you should have to make decisions in your life. I think that's very important. At the same time, um, being true to your own kind of scholarly pursuits or like notion of your own personal authenticity is also maybe not a great way to make life decisions. So just trying to think through that tension, I think, is really important and helpful. And maybe the most helpful thing that I've learned being in graduate school is that you have to sort of see that decision as one that you're making that will set you up to succeed in some areas of your life, hopefully, but will not guarantee you those kinds of successes. And you have to sort of be mentally prepared to take that risk, knowing full well that you're doing it because you couldn't do anything else or Mm -hmm. you couldn't see yourself doing anything else. Um, So, yeah, you know, I would say just don't be intimidated by the difficulty Mm -hmm. of it, but also don't uh, don't kid yourself about the difficulty about it. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for coming back onto the podcast with us. It's been been a while. It has. That's good to have you back. (laughs) Yeah, it's good to be back. Nice (laughs) to see the both of you on the other side of it. Actually, I've, I've really enjoyed watching it sort of find its feet and grow in different ways and yeah fun to get some snapshots of the institute um, especially because I'm I'm entering that like orbiting status as a PhD student ah. I'm not like around here all the time so it's really helpful to kind of hear about what's still happening across the city yeah that's good go with the planet metaphor you've still got a gravitational pull around the place <laughs> <laughs> that's good to know <laughs> And that brings us to the last of our regular segments. What is your pleasure? This is where we get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun. The movies and television shows we are watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drink we make and enjoy, 
the music we listen to, and so on. So, Danielle, what's your pleasure? I feel like I always default to movies on this, Mm. but to be fair, it's been very cold outside, and basically all I've been doing with my downtime is watching movies. So, um, I actually haven't watched this movie in a while, but it occurred to me that I wanted to watch it again. Okay. Uh, I saw it, when did it come out? It came out in 2017, end of 2017, beginning of 2018, so like a year ago. Hmm. Um, and it's called, uh, <coughs> it's called Phantom Thread. Oh. Did you hear it? Did you watch it? Oh, the soundtrack is, is the soundtrack of my life. Already? I think so. And I never saw it because I went on Christmas day cause I was really lonely on Christmas day and I went to go see it and then found out that in fact, it was only opening on Christmas Day in the States and not in Canada. Oh, no. And then I didn't see it. And I was really sad, and I haven't seen it since because then I quickly, uh, soon yeah, after, got not, a concussion, and then it was oh, like... And it's not really out anywhere right now. No, no. That's the you difficult procure thing. procure it. I know, as I discovered, because I hunted it. I had, I had the feeling that I wanted to watch it, and then I tried to hunt it down, and it was not findable. Hmm. Um, well, if I've already mentioned it on this podcast, I apologize. But if I've not, or if I have, either way, it's worth mentioning again. Uh, it is an amazing movie. <laughs> yeah, it is. Well, um, I, I, it looks like an amazing movie, and you I love. I love Daniel Day Lewis and Paul Thomas Anderson and Johnny Greenwood. So yeah, yeah. No, Daniel Day Lewis is wonderful mm. in this movie. Um, and the the lady they have, who's the co-lead, um, I don't think she's been in anything else. I think this is her first mm. movie. Um, but she's also amazing. It's just such a lush movie. Mm. And yeah, you've said you've listened to the soundtrack. Oh, the yeah. music is amazing. Yeah. Uh, it's worth watching too because like the costuming is beautiful. So basically the story line is this guy is a a dressmaker in like London hmm. I think in like the 50s um, and he's this huge deal everyone loves him he's like this genius hmm. um, and he's very full of himself <laughs> uh, and this woman comes into his life and then chaos ensues I've heard it described as a dark romantic comedy okay it's actually really hard when you watch it to make sense of what it's trying Hmm. to do it's hard to know really like how to take it seriously or what parts to take seriously Hmm. it yeah it's a hard to describe movie but it's also like the subtext of the movie is also there's him being the dressmaker, but the subtext to it is it's inspired apparently by um, Alfred Hitchcock filmmaking. Okay, like stylistically, yeah. it's inspired by that, but it's also inspired by his relationship with his wife. Okay. And kind of like with creativity, like his mm. creative process in general. Um, so it's got the whole kind of like creator and muse thing going on. And there's a lot of like visual hints, like visual homages to uh, Hitchcock's movies, which if you know Hitchcock's movies are more obvious. And if you don't, then it's like, this is just really cool. Yeah. Um, it's worth a watch. It's really good. I'm going to try and rewatch it. <laughs> so. Well, 
I wish you luck in that endeavor. You should watch it for the first time. <laughs> yes, I know I should. I should. <laughs> but, you know, I don't know. Those things kind of pile up. Yeah, it's It's true. a big endeavor for me to watch a movie, you know? Yeah. I don't know. Say Libby. It's true. Um, okay. My pleasure is as you default to movies, I typically default to music. <laughs> um, and so I've been really into um, an older album, 2001. Um, so old. So old. <laughs> um, and it's called um, Apocalypse by Bill Callahan. Um, and he's like an American singer-songwriter. Um, and he's talking a lot about America. Um, and I, it's not coincidental that uh, it comes out in 2001. Um, mm. And anyways, I'm going to read you um, a couple lines from the one song that I'm really obsessed with called Drover. And he, he sings, One thing about this wild, wild country, it takes a strong, strong, it breaks a strong, strong mind. Um, and that's sort of the heart of the album. Mm. And it's also like something that I think about it with our modern culture a lot um, and uh, lament over. So Bill Callahan, he resonates with my heart. Mm. What's American singer-songwriter, so like... Would you call it like Americana or folk or uh, maybe country? Not country. Um, he like he kind of bridges the gap between um, like folk and like almost like it's like if you think of like Leonard Cohen mm. in America. Um, with like a more of a folk, um, okay. tinge and more, more like electric guitar, <laughs> 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 um, then I think that that's kind of what Bill Callahan's like. So I don't know. Anyways. Check it out. I've been Check on it out. A, I've been on a twangy or music kick lately, so... And that brings us to the end of our show this week. If you would like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can visit us at icscanada.edu. If anything from this week's show piques your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith at icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. You can follow my co-host as at Mark Standish, and you can follow me as at Beware the Yeti. You can also follow ICS as at INSCHR. And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, subscribe to us on iTunes and consider giving us a review. It helps people find us and keeps us on their radar. Most importantly, go tell your friends. Bye!